Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. We first declared war on cancer back in 1971. And, well, I don't know if we're losing, but we certainly haven't won. Cancer is our medical Afghanistan, an endless slog against an implacable opponent that is willing to wait and regroup and fight again. So we've made some progress from the days of my childhood when cancer was so feared that people only spoke about it in a whisper. She's got cancer. As if some scandal had befallen the unfortunate soul. We've made progress in treatment, but our treatment options remain in many cases really barbaric. And we've made progress with screening, but too many of our screening tools are deeply flawed. So it's exciting to imagine a future where a simple blood test could provide reliable, accurate information about cancer in its earliest stages, providing early treatment for those who need it and reassurance for those who do not. And not so far in the future, maybe soon, maybe even today, maybe today. But before we run off to our doctor's office and demand the test, there are one or two or a thousand questions that need answering. But stroke of luck, we have someone here with us today who is in a position to answer many of those questions. Dr. Phil Febo is trained in internal medicine and oncology and has worked as a physician scientist to bring genomic medicine from, as they say, bench to bedside. He worked at what is now the Broad Institute and Duke's Institute of Genome Sciences and Policy and UCSF before becoming CMO of Genomic Health. Finally, in 2018, Dr. Febo joined a struggling little startup outfit called Illumina as the CMO, which is really what brings him here today. Welcome, Phil. Thank you, Laura. Great to, uh, great to be on the podcast with you. Thanks. So uh, let's talk about Grail. Grail is in the Holy Grail, right? It's a cheeky name. It certainly is. And, you know, thinking about your introduction, you know, cancer has been a very, you know, it's a vicious beast, right, that is happy to change to avoid uh, even our most elegant uh, uh, therapies and and management. Um, You know, we have made steady progress. I, I do think we're winning the war, but we're not winning definitively. Uh, we have seen cancer uh, survival improve uh, through improvements in detection, improvements of managing local disease, local, uh, removing local disease, radiating local disease, in you know targeting patients with uh, therapies that um, are effective in with in cancers that have specific mutations. And also in the supportive care that goes along with cancer care. But to your point, still too many people die of cancer. Too often we diagnose cancer late. And, you know, it's exciting to, to, to see that you, the administration, the current administration is, is reigniting the moonshot in recognition that we have to do better. We have to do better. And screening is, and the grail uh, as a company, um, uh, was launched very much uh, for that purpose. Yeah, that's the name, right? There's the, the Holy Grail Project. And Illumina was involved in getting Grail started, but then it was a separate entity. Now you've brought it back into Illumina, right? Um, sort of 
at the time moment that it gets exciting because there's a test gallery, there's a test. And this test makes use of cell-free DNA. So I feel like I first heard about the possibility of this test after cell-free DNA testing was a big, was, was introduced in the prenatal realm. Yeah, no, absolutely. We can talk a little bit of the origin story for Grail and, you know, for the, since 2011, um, uh, women have had the opportunity to use non-invasive prenatal uh, screening or non-invasive prenatal testing, uh, blood draw at 10 weeks of pregnancy to determine if the, the fetus they are carrying has some of the common trisomies um, or a genetic disorder um, and have that information. Um, that's based on cell-free DNA that comes from actually the placenta during uh, pregnancy that you can get that information. What happened when Illumina was, uh, we acquired a company called Veronata that was performing a lot of those tests with our sequencers. What we observed was a, f a few women were found to have uh, genomes circulating in their blood that were not compatible with life. And it turned out it was cell-free DNA from cancers that they had that they were not aware of. Uh, and when pursued, they were found to have cancer. So that was the idea. And, you know, people at Illuma looked at that and said, wow, imagine if this observation could be turned into a product. Well, there's a lot of investment and a lot of time and huge studies that are required to go from an observation of finding cell-free DNA indicating cancer in a few women to having a product that you can launch. And that's why Grail was spun out, because it's a, just a different uh, activity to do, to refine the technology. They were using Illumina sequencers, do the clinical studies, collect all the samples, hundreds of thousands of samples um, to analyze in order to determine the best way to detect that signal with the right performance so that we can get to a screening test. And it was early, it was very clear early on that this method could be, you know, detect many types of cancer with a single test. And that I think that combination led to the idea of grail, like the holy grail. What how can you develop a test that could detect, you know, 50 types of cancer with a single blood draw and detect patients earlier when treatment can cure disease through local treatment, surgery, radiation, or at least detect it earlier so that a combination of local therapy and adjuvant therapy meaning therapy after you receive your local systemic therapy, chemotherapy, or targeted therapy after you receive your initial surgery or radiation could really improve outcomes. And um, and that's where it started. And so Grail uh, dug in, was doing the work, um, and they did go from observation to a product. And what we saw at Illumina after tracking those, and, and Illumina spun out many companies, uh, most, you know, most of which we did not uh, have not chosen to reacquire, we thought we we wanted to bring, we reacquired Grail for the very reason that they'd gone from an observation to a product and now they needed help. They were a small company and, you know, this is a test that needs to be reimbursed for patients that needs to undergo regulatory uh, review and approval and needs to be available globally because of the potential impact. And so uh, I, 
we felt quite confident that by acquiring, reacquiring Grail, bringing it back into Illumina, our global presence, our operations, our regulatory, our market access could really be beneficial to getting that test to more patients more quickly, which translates, quite frankly, into live save. This sounds like something new to me for Illumina. Maybe I don't understand the range of what, but I, I feel that Illumina is known for supplying, well, almost all of the places that you might turn today to get genetic testing done probably use Illumina machines, right? Like better than 90%, I think, chance that they use Illumina machines, use Illumina microarrays, use Illumina uh, reagents, all these things. But this direct, you're going to offer the test. Is that a new place, sort of that sort of patient care space? Well, I think you're right. In thinking about Illumina as primarily a provider of technology, because that's what we've done for the past 22 years. And we've been dedicated to bringing down the cost of those technologies, initially microarrays and then uh, then sequencing with the acquisition of Selexa. And we've really worked hard to make it, make the sequencing more accurate, make it uh, faster and significantly driving down the cost. And, and because of our success, a lot of labs, research labs, and now a growing number of clinical labs do choose to use our sequencers. And it's opening up opportunities like the detection of circulating cell-free DNA for patients, whether it's screening, uh, whether it's for treatment decision, or uh, monitoring, which is an exciting uh, new area. Primarily, that's what we've done. All along, if we feel as a company that it makes sense to support a service in order to accelerate the evidence and the adoption of, of sequencing-based technologies, we've done that. And I've mentioned we bought Veronata, um, which was a cell-free DNA uh, testing service for uh, non-invasive uh, prenatal testing. And we've offered that service and we continue to offer that service um, uh, primarily through other labs, but we still run samples. And uh, you know, by by participating in that way, not only were we able to improve uh, what we could bring to customers by having that kind of understanding of what running a service means and how our technology can perform even better, but you know what's happened over the past few years is that that we've supported customers who've uh, have a much higher volumes of NIPT testing. We've developed kits so that NIPT testing can be performed uh, by a, a patient's own medical institution. And that's been very popular in, in Europe where, you know, a laboratory developed test doesn't serve that market as well. They most, most tests are run through what are called IVDs or run locally. And we've really made it accessible for patients We've also worked on reimbursement uh, to make sure that it's affordable for patients. Uh, so that in the United States, you know, there is very good coverage uh, for most women uh, who are pregnant can get uh, NIPT testing. Yeah. Uh, so NIPT testing takes advantage of the fact that as cells naturally senesce and so on, that they, they shed all this naked DNA into That's the right. bloodstream. So you have uh, a quantity of DNA. And I... I I think it's really uh, an interesting story that this started with these observations in pregnant women that you were mentioning um, that turned out to have cancer. That was very complicated for clinical people because you had this unvalidated, untested sort of suspicion that was medically important, but also like, 
how do you get back this information? We usually have validated tests. And I keep saying, it's going to happen the other way. One of these days, they're going to be testing someone to see if they have cancer and discover they're pregnant. Uh, <laughs> I was waiting for that. But so, 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 but as I understand it, um, actually from listening to you at an earlier talk, I thought they would be looking at the sequence of these little uh, snippets of DNA and sort of say, well, they're out of whack and balanced the way they do for prenatal testing to look at percentages. But you're also looking directly at the methylation status of these snippets, right? That's telling you something uh, about a signal from potentially from cancer. Yeah, so it's so it's it's an important um, important difference for NIPT. What is being sequenced uh, is the DNA, and uh, what we know is by just kind of sequencing the DNA and looking at variation that's just common to humans, right? Uh, each fetus is, has a combined uh, genetics from their mother and their father. Um, you can look for a big um, copy number variation. So in the case you see, you can find evidence for an extra chromosome for that developing fetus. Um, and that's where they saw, you know, extra copy numbers across the genome for these women who had cancer, which just really wouldn't support life, supports a cancer cell, but not not a not an individual. What they found when they did the heavy lifting of the research and they started looking at different approaches, sequencing the DNA, um, sequencing uh, sets of genes for the DNA, um, and then adding what's called methylation. Methylation is a modification of DNA that occurs that is used to help um, regulate uh, how the DNA is used to uh, transcribe genes. And methylation occurs across the whole genome. And they looked at, you know, panels of genes and methylation patterns of those. And then they looked at, you know, whole genome methylation. And what the scientists of Grail have found, and this is all, you know, published, is that they found that the, the, the way to get to a test that was sensitive enough, because it's much harder to detect a few cancer cells than it is to detect, detect a 10-week-old fetus, is that um, methylation was had the right performance as far as detecting cancer when present, um, even at its earlier stages. Uh, and it was more effective than looking at the actual DNA sequence and looking for changes in the DNA sequence itself. And so the test that they've commercialized, the gallery test, is based on methylation patterns rather than the actual sequence of the tumor. So, yeah, gallery is Grail's new test. Um, I'll talk about this in one second. I just want to say in response to what you're saying is it's amazing how fast all this happened. Oh, I mean, I work in this field, so <laughs> I should be used to fast. Like I tell people who aren't in genetics, like you don't understand if it's 10 years ago, that's the Middle Ages for us. But, uh, you know, when you're talking about this work. It just feels like decades and decades, and it hasn't even been 10 years since this. Well, I guess this technology was introduced exactly 10 years ago. Um, no. So it's really extraordinary. It has and, happened really fast, Laura, and it's you know, and, and I think we can we can dive into that. That creates its own challenges, right? Because by its very nature, medicine has a governor on it, right? Like it's it tends to be much more conservative, and 
you know, for good reason. Like we all count on uh, health care. We, yeah, we want it's one word, Theranos, <laughs> right? Like don't move too fast and don't break things. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Like, you know, um, so there's some good reason there, but it, it does have its own challenges. Yeah, it's a, it's I think it may be one of the biggest challenges we have in genomics is how fast everything wants to go. And um, and if you're not getting there fast, somebody else is. So the the we're we're always a bit of a step behind in sort of figuring out like, wait, what are the consequences of what we're actually doing? So let's talk about what the consequences of what we're actually doing. First, gallery, it's commercially available in the U.S. and in trials in the U.K. Is that right? That's right. And there's many trials uh, in the U.S. ongoing as well. But the U.K. has a massive trial that's that's underway where the actually it's the national health system of U.K. is really kicking the tires to to see how it performs within uh, their the, the people of England. Um, so it is commercially available. Uh, it uh, it launched last year. And uh, right now, you know, for nine hundred and fifty dollars, anyone uh, can work with a physician and get the test. Um, what we're seeing and, uh, you know, again, this is all public uh, knowledge, but, we, you know, the, the early use is primarily in uh, research, in uh, organizations that take care of uh, integrated health systems like the National Health System of the UK, uh, like uh, groups that they've uh, established partnerships with, uh, such as the Providence St. Joseph Health System. Uh, and also some employers are, are offering it. So at Illumina, um, we're a self-insured employer and, and we, we're offering it to employers. So I've actually taken advantage of it. I was very pleased to have cancer signal not detected as, as the report because I'm over, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm over 50. So I qualified for the test. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I turned 60 last year and I, I keep telling people I feel like the, the warranty ran out. The warranty <laughs> ran out. I didn't know. 60, your warranty runs out and then everything breaks. Um, yeah. So, okay. So let's dig in a little bit. The tumor types it can detect. Yeah. So right now, uh, it detects over 50 uh, cancers across all stages. Um, and right now in the United States, right, if you look at the U.S. Services, Preventative Services Task Force, they recommend four cancer screenings, so breast, cervical, uh, colon, and lung uh, in appropriate risk uh, populations. PSA for prostate cancer has come and gone. Right now it's, it's trending down. Uh, it's not, I think it's rated a C currently. Um, but what we know is that 71% of cancer deaths, so people dying of cancer, are from cancers that have no screening. And that's where uh, you need to take, you're not gonna get, you're not gonna build meaningfully one cancer at a time. Um, to get to that 71 because, you know, there are the most common lung, breast, colon, prostate. They are the most common, but then there are hundreds and indeed there are thousands of types of cancer. And what Grail, uh, Grail's approach allows uh, an approach where you can detect a cancer signal based on the methylation patterns in the circulating in the cell-free DNA. And they've developed an algorithm using tens, hundreds of thousands of samples to differentiate people who have cancer from people who have not. And they've worked with the leading cancer institutes to collect samples so they know who had cancer and they know who didn't have detected cancer. And they ran those samples to understand, to develop that, that test. Um, and that's important to get that cancer signal detected. 
What's also important about the gallery test is that through those same samples, they were able to say, well, what is the tissue, likely tissue of origin? So if a signal is detected, it doesn't just say, you know, okay, go on a wild goose chase trying to track down where cancer could be in this body, uh, this person's body. It says, you know, cancer, tissue of origin, likely breast, likely lung. And in a recent study, right, the, 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 the accuracy of that tissue of origin was very good. It was 94% of the time it got it right. As far as when they did the diagnostic and they found cancer, they found it in the, the place where it was suggested 94% of the time. So that's how uh, a gallery does. And it really addresses that percentage of patients. And, you know, based on the performance and the prospective pathfinder study, if you just do modeling, Right now, about 31% of cancers are identified in stage one and two, right? If GRAIL was used widely, the populations tested with GRAIL with the right risk, that shifts to increase to 82% uh, of patients could be diagnosed in that stage one and two. And the, the outcomes are, are much better uh, when, you, when you look at it. Well, I, I certainly think for, for some of the common cancers, for lung cancer, for ovarian cancer, as somebody who's sat across the desk from somebody discussing screening in a high-risk population, you feel much more comfortable about breast cancer in the sense that, like, the chances that they'll be able to screen it in such a way that they will find it at a treatable stage is really very good. Yes. And ovarian cancer is the flip of that, right? So you're sitting there and you're thinking, do all these things, but in the back of your head, you know, and it probably won't help. Um, So it's very depressing. So is, are those two on the list? They are on the list, uh, as is pancreatic cancer, right? Another another cancer where so often just diagnosed, even though it's usually a very small tumor when it's diagnosed, location, location, location. It's just, it's oftentimes um, only curable through a major operation and if, and uh, curable only rarely. Um, So yeah, they're on the list. And what, what, we need more we work does need to be done and and what grail is doing is they're continuing to support large research studies and they you know for example in the united kingdom right they're going to this year complete enrollment of 140,000 individuals about 30,000 of those individuals will have symptoms and are very high risk for cancer the rest are you know just uh, a standard risk uh, group and they're going to follow those patients and see what is the performance, uh, how many had a cancer signal detected, uh, when a cancer signal detected, what was uh, what was found, or what proportion of those actually were found to have cancer, what happened over time, and if they meet expectations based on the studies already performed, they're planning on opening that test up to hundreds of thousands of, of additional patients over the next five years, and all of which will continue to collect data and. Inevitably, as you test more patients, the benefit of just today's modern era of testing and machine learning and data is that the 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 algorithm gets better and better at identifying the signal and identifying the tissue of origin. So it's gonna it's it's very exciting where it already is right now um, with its performance, but uh, that performance will only get better because of the continued investment in studies. Let me um, let me just push in two areas because it's very exciting that it can find this and that and that it's effective in finding many cancers. But you mentioned other screening, inadequate screening devices that we have. I think of like CA125 for ovarian cancer. You mentioned prostate screening. 
a lot of times the problem is not that they couldn't find a signal of cancer. It's that it was very um, nonspecific. So the ratio of false positives to true positives was very, very problematic. And so when this first was introduced and people uh, asked me, well, what do you think? Do you think this is possible? I was like, I don't have any doubt that these brilliant people will find a way to find a cancer signal. So what I'm worried about is two things, and I want you to address each of them. One is, are they going to do it without finding too many false positives, which obviously creates a lot of anxiety, uh, create a lot of cost for the system. If 20% of who you test have to go and do one of these searches. Um, and the other thing, which I think is is maybe a little bit more complex and nuanced, is, is uh, sometimes we effectively find cancers, like with mammograms, and we do this whole program and we find all these cancers and everybody whose cancer is found feels like, oh, they saved my life. They found cancer and they got treated and now I'm fine. But when you look at overall death rates, we say like, oh, the death rate didn't come down as much as you would expect for all of these treated cancers, which means that sometimes we're treating cancers that would not ever have actually made anyone sick. Um, and I'm not going to speculate on why, because I just don't know the biology of it well enough. But I know the numbers and the numbers suggest that we may be treating things that don't need treating, which has a whole mortality and morbidity associated with it itself. So in those two ways, where do you see gallery performing? Yeah, two major questions and uh, both of which um, we have some very good early data and some really strong trials to support, but certainly need more work. So on the first one, I think it's important that our, we understand where we are with our established screenings before we understand the most recent results from the Pathfinder study for gallery. So if you think about mammography, um, if you think about fetal occult blood testing, uh, if you think about CT scans uh, for lung cancer in high-risk populations, uh, your first question was, what is the positive predictive value? So if you have a positive test, what's the chance that you're actually found to have cancer? And for those tests, people are often surprised that with mammography, it's between 5 and 10% of the time that a woman who goes in to get her mammography, something is found, only about 5 to 10% of the time is she, through a biopsy and subsequent tests, found to have cancer. Same thing for if you are found to have blood in your stool uh, for screening for colon cancer. Same thing if you are found to have a nodule on your lung if you're a smoker with lung cancer. It's all in that kind of 5 to 10 percent. On the recent study for Gallery, where they uh, had 6,500 individuals participated, about 2 percent of those patients were, had a can positive cancer signal detected. Subsequently, 44 percent were found to have cancer. Right. So the positive predictive value is already at 44 percent, much higher than screening tests that we already accept as a standard of care. Yeah, that's so, great. Yeah. So it's, it was outstanding. Before. I was, quite frankly, when I read the study that they published, I was pleasantly surprised. I thought that was really strong. And it's just a test. And some of it, Laura, there is actually an advantage to looking 
having a broad cancer signal detection and then a tissue of origin just as far as the performance. And we probably don't want to get into the statistics of that. You know, your readers, your listeners may go to sleep, but there is a, uh, an advantage to performance by taking on the challenge of having a multi-cancer early detection test. And I, uh, as these tests come on, I think we're likely to see that positive predictive value go up. Now, your second part makes it important. So, okay, well, that's that's encouraging, 44% positive predictive value. Um, but are they important cancers? Like, and that's where the PSA challenge has been, right? Like, yes, we can find men with prostate cancer, but these are, you know, generally men who are older and uh, prostate cancer may not ever affect their health other than getting diagnosed and treated for it. Um, and that answer will still evolve, but there is some really uh, um, uh, encouraging uh, data that Grail has uh, presented where the, it, when you think about what their test is detecting, and you've already stated it, this is cell-free DNA that is shed when cancer cells, when cancers are growing, some cancer cells divide and some die, right? There's always natural turnaround. And when they die, they shed the cell-free DNA and that cell-free DNA has to get from the tumor into the circulation. Well, there's good preliminary data to suggest that if you detect cell-free DNA from a tumor in the circulation, it's more likely to be an aggressive tumor. It's more likely to be a tumor that is not going to stay indolent because it's already adjacent to the blood system where that cell-free DNA is leaching into. Oh, that's really that interesting. So, you know, and it, it makes sense. Uh, and, and there's data to support it, it's still early and we'll have to understand that. So uh, the the early data suggests to the answer your second question is that by the nature of what Grail's testing for with gallery, it's more likely to diagnose those cancers that truly can become a problem for the individual need to be diagnosed and need to be treated. So the, the short version, the too long don't read version is early days, feel good about it. Yeah. All right. <laughs> exactly. So I'm I'm actually surprised. So you you mentioned positive predictive value, and of course, we've 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 been had this demonstrated many times. Positive predictive value is automatically better uh, in a higher risk population. Yes. Right? The higher risk you start out with, the better Absolutely. your positive predictive values. So I'm sort of surprised that uh, your early testing is aggressively both high risk and general population. I, I saw an article just this week that was looking at this sort of testing. I won't mention any names because it wasn't Grails, but whatever, this sort of testing in a Lee population. Yeah. And, you know, automatically I'm like, yeah, that seems like such a good use. Yes. So these are individuals already at very high risk of multiple cancers. What a good tool to have to try and catch them early. So um, do you want to speak to that, the decision making around looking at high risk versus not, well, not populations. Yeah, and, and clearly, I think it's natural that this test will be most broadly available for patients at a higher risk earlier. Uh, and over time, you know, we'll understand its performance in individuals with lower risk. Um, I guess I want to be careful when I said, you know, for the UK, there's, there's a group that's symptomatic. So that's different, right? These are individuals that say something, something hurts, I'm going to go see a doctor. Uh, and so those are very high risk. In, in um, uh, studies within the UK system, uh, they've really wanted to speed up the diagnosis of what's happening for those individuals. 
So they actually know the outcomes. And in that population, about six to 8% of those patients end up having cancer as their diagnosis causing their problems. That's different than when you look at someone who's asymptomatic. Um, but the studies in asymptomatic still are include older individuals uh, over the, sorry, in our age group, over the age of 50. <laughs> um, and, we love you, older individuals. <laughs> we do. We're part of you. We're here. Um, and as well as individuals who may be younger but have a strong family history, have a history of a known genetic, uh, uh, you know, inherited genetic risk factor like p53 mutations, which is the Lee Fraumini families, where we have right, we've really had nothing for those individuals to do because cancer can manifest in many different organs around the body with that syndrome, um, uh, and so it's still a higher risk in these early studies. Yeah, interesting. So we won't really know the full answer until we can follow these people out, not only to see how many have cancer, how many don't have cancer, but 10 years out, right? Like how many how many lives are we saving? Yeah, and this, this comes to where I think, um, you know, and, you know, obviously I'm biased. I'm a, I'm a medical oncologist and, I spent my, you know, clinical life taking care of patients who were diagnosed too late, who had metastatic disease, and I was doing the best I could to help them live as long as I could, but I wasn't curing them other than a few of the men that I had the privilege to treat who had testicular cancer, and, and we could, could cure testicular cancer. Um, so I'm strongly biased towards trying to get to earlier detection. Um, the gold standard for screening tests that we've held uh, is an improvement in disease-specific mortality for that cancer. So for mammography, we have studies that show if you get your mammography, your risk of dying from breast cancer is decreased. Same thing with uh, occult stool blood testing, uh, occult stool uh, blood testing for colon cancer. Same thing for spiral CT for smokers uh, for lung cancer. Um, PSA, it actually does have good European studies <laughs> showing that, but uh, that's that's a whole different debate. Um, you know, if we hold that ourselves to that, uh, and given the time course that's required, to your point, it requires decades. You know, th this test will not be available for decades. And so, how do we, in today's world, you know, make something like this available as we sh once we know enough about its performance, its safety, its effect efficacy, how it, the interpretation of results, how to, you know, work with patients who had a positive test but didn't have cancer diagnosed, right? So, 44% is great, but that means there's still 56% that had a positive test who subsequently were not found to have cancer. What is their risk over the next year? What is the next risk over the next two years? Um, there's a lot we have to learn. And that's that's where we go. And that's where how do we, you know, challenge ourselves in our system to provide this as quickly as possible without putting patients at risk. And that's that's why what it does require is very large studies. And that's why you see you know, the UK is not kicking the tires on, you know, a thousand patients, which is a large clinical study, right? Laura, mm -hmm. that's not, yeah. not 10,000, but 140,000 people. Like, yeah, that, as a starting that's, place, that's pretty amazing <laughs> as a starting, a pilot study, a pilot study of 140,000 people. Um, oh, I just think of a lot of the groups that genetic counselors tend to serve. Oh, for example, 
this happened to a friend of mine. You know, when you've had people that have had their ovaries out and have had mastectomies to try and decrease their risk because they have, say, a yeah. mutation, yeah. you can't really screen those people anymore. With And uh, yet they have a small but real continuing risk. Um, so to have more tools, when I went into this field, I was starting off, just starting school. I remember I, I, I was felt like, well, I wouldn't want to go into cancer. That sounded scary to me talking. I think I influenced by that whisper campaign I mentioned in, in, in my childhood that cancer was scary. And I very quickly, as I got into this, realized that it wasn't scary at all because for the most part, we had things to offer. And as long as you can give people hope uh, when you're telling them they're at higher risk, it's not that scary. But you know, lymphomenia is a terrible disease, but so is having no screening modalities yeah. after somebody has mastectomy and so on. So I feel like there are niches where there's going to be obvious and early value, even for the big picture. And I know that's the big audience. That's the big payday. That's everything to talk to that general population, even as you are, as they say, building, building the plane while you're flying the plane, um, which is, I think, the way a lot of things get done. Um yeah, and for the know, reason that I'm not being negative about it, for the reason yeah. you said, like you can't wait a lifetime to introduce something you think is effective. Yeah, and and you know what moves medicine is evidence, right? Um, and that's the that's the strong part about medicine is that you know there is a self-correcting where you know not just one study, but oftentimes multiple studies are required to convince experts that. You know, the studies are capturing the true performance, whether it's a drug or or a test and that there's, uh, you know, the regulators can be comfortable that it's safe and effective and the payers can be uh, comfortable that it's necessary um, and reasonable, um, which are the key words that uh, each stakeholder uses. (laughs) Um, And certainly uh, uh, a lot of interpretation for each of those four words, but, you know, important because, you know, when you're providing a test, there's a person waiting for that result at the end of the line. And, you know, we're really proud about, you know, Illuminous technology supporting this kind of test and really excited to help Grail realize uh, their vision now that the initial studies have shown the performance <laughs> to the level that it has. And, now that there is a desire to make make sure that uh, this test can be available globally for, you know, uh, a lot of study and, and a lot of analysis, because just as you said, each population has its own set of cancer risk, its own level of cancer risk. Uh, and there are subpopulations with very high risk. There are others with low What's the best use? You know, neither Illumina nor Grail can tell you what the best use of this test is in your population. Um, that's going to happen over time, and that's going to be what the medical experts end up agreeing on. In the United States, you know, we're dependent on the U.S. Services Preventative Task Force, right? Uh, they give a grade to screening. Um, they've never They've never had to assess a multi-cancer early detection test. How are they going to do that? <laughs> They're going to have to figure that out, right? Um, and in the UK, you know, the study is going to be done, and then there, uh, the the group that reviews their tech health technologies is the Nice group. And, you know, they're going to have to look at the evidence, say, does this make sense and who does it make sense for? And um, that's that's very much uh, where we are with this test. But it is exciting 
to go from this observation was really right. So NIPT was first commercially available in 2011. You know, the testing was done. I think the first observation was probably 2014, 2015. Grail was spun off in about 2016. And now they've done, you know, hundreds of thousands of samples with, you know, large studies that are underway. And already we have a good sense for the early performance as far as detection. Um, you know, it's moving uh, like light speed. And that's the kind of speed we need to to move uh, to really uh, achieve the goal of decreasing the suffering and burden of cancer is those kind of, um, you know, really transformational technologies that can uh, change the game on cancer yeah. and help I, it I, faster. The faster, fast. I mean, I I think that the timeline is just, it's just stunning to me, that timeline. I mean, I, I thought that this was something that would happen when I heard about it. It's like, yep, that makes sense that it should be technically feasible, but I would automatically have doubled that timeline in my head. Like when, like, well, in 10 or 15 years, not four. Let me ask you, we're coming to the end of our amount of time. So let me ask you a, a, a different sort of question about Illumina and you were talking about the, the technology. So Illumina has come to dominate the, the market for what next gen, what second generation sequencing, um, which uses volume, high throughput, to test the hell out of short sequences of DNA. With the volume and iteration of testing process creating a high statistical certainty of accuracy. So cell-free, fetal, fetal, cell-free DNA testing is a use really well-suited to Illumina's short read technology. But when I talk to uh, people about the next generation of genetic sequencing, the next next generation, not next generation sequencing, which was a mistake, right? It's like modernism. Like, now then where would you go? So (laughs) where do you go? go? Um, I always emphasize that, in my opinion, no one technology is going to win the day like Sanger won in the first generation and Illumina won in the second generation. Because I think we're looking at a, a future where DNA and RNA sequencing are going to be used in so many ways that no one technology will be optimized for all of them. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I mean, it's first of all, you know, just if we talk about currently with sequencing DNA, um, it's, you know, there are a lot of, there are a growing number of providers of DNA sequencing technology, right? Uh, Illumina is the choice that many laboratories have chosen over the years because of our focus on decreasing the cost, increasing the accuracy, and increasing the capacity of our sequencers. But we're not the only choice. Um, we are popular, but not the only. Um, to your other point is that we, you know, technology evolves. There, you know, there's some different ways to de- to sequence, uh, to detect the specific nucleotides in sequence of DNA, and you know, there we see those forming. So, you know, what we use the sequencing by synthesis has been, you know, the most efficient um, solution over the past, I'd say, 10 years uh, after our acquisition of uh, Selexa, as we increase the the ability and the length of the reads. But now there are multiple different alternatives to to get that base pair by base pair sequence. And, you know, it's 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 going to continue to grow this year. We're seeing the entrance to more sequencers, uh, different companies altering whether it's small read or long read. 
Yeah, um, and Illumina, Illumina uh, recently made a big investment in long read technology. Um, so, for instance, that's an option for certain uses. I would call it a niche option right now. Uh, where do you see that being the technology of choice? Well, what we know is that, you know, certainly if we start talking about individuals with genetic disease, um, you know, children born and requiring intensive care because of cardiovascular abnormalities, because of, you know, failure to thrive, where you really know that there's likely a genetic driver, you know, many of those patients can now be diagnosed with a rapid whole genome using short reads, but we know about 5 to 10% have structural variants or variants in areas that short reads don't capture well and are invisible. And so there's, you know, getting to those long reads allows for a greater proportion of diagnoses. Um, and what I think will remain to be seen, I think just by economics and speed, probably makes most sense to do the short read. And then if you don't have an answer, you're going to want a, a long read. And yes, we we have invested and we will be releasing products that allow you to do longer reads on Illumina sequencers so that you can capture more of those sequence uh, or structural variants and variants that are hard if you're just dealing with 150 or 250 base pair segments. So it is an important complementary uh, approach uh, that uh, I think is very exciting in the field. And it, what it means is that more children and more families will have a clear answer. And, uh, you know, uh, that also means increasingly, if you look at the data, not only are they getting an answer and ending what we call the diagnostic odyssey, but more of those children are having changes in management that can have dramatic impact on their outcomes. Uh, and now we're seeing the advent of therapeutic interventions, too, that are specific to the genetic, um, uh, the gene that's affected in them. So it's it's an exciting time. And yes, there's there's there are many, there's an evolving number of technologies that can do sequencing and we're learning how they complement each other and in the, to help uh, children and others um, in healthcare. Yeah. Okay. Well, that is just fascinating. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming on and talking about Grail and Gallery. I am excited to see where it goes. I don't know if I'm ready to run out and take the test yet, <laughs> but we'll see. I might be convincible. I, um, it is certainly as a clinician, for me, it's incredibly exciting to think about having more to offer, particularly for those individuals who have reason to be extra worried. Yeah. Well, right now, I think it's very right. People should still get the recommended screening tests that are proven, right? This complements that. And, you know, I, I'm up to date and I chose to go out and get gallery because, you know, Illumina uh, supports that. Um, but it is a very personal decision. Uh, but, you know, regardless of any individual's decision, um, it is exciting. It's fabulous to see the investment going in. It's, uh, we'll see more of these tests. It's great to see the Biden administration talking about multi-cancer early detection tests uh, as a path to realizing their goal of having cancer-specific mortality in the next 10 years, right? They want to cut cancer deaths by half over the next 10 years. Uh, that's going to take some really forward-looking transformational uh, ideas. And uh, I, you know, it's clear that these, this group of multi-cancer early detection tests, um, the early evidence suggests that one of the paths to getting to that is the further evaluation and adoption of these tests. I, I, and I just, 
to add to what you're saying, I mean, mortality is certainly the single most important metric you're going to look at there. But also, in the introduction, I mentioned how brutal our current therapies are for many forms of cancer. And so there's more, you know, that's important. It's important at the end of the day. That's the goal is to have somebody be alive at the end of the day. But I think one of the other values that we can start to hope for in catching things early is that we can use less brutal uh, methods. Well, there's other elements, too. Uh, if you think about it, um, just think about underserved populations or, you know, economically disadvantaged individuals. You know, Gallery's a blood test, right? And if the data suggests that it can, you know, supports the early observations and it starts being used, well, you know, we've seen during the pandemic that you can have in-house, you know, phlebotomists can be sent to the house with pretty uh, trivial cost. Um, that means you don't need to miss work. You don't need to get transportation. You don't need daycare. You know, there are many social determinants of health that create barriers for people accessing, you know, mammogram, uh, colonoscopy, um, that if if we really take a hard look at ourselves and our country and the health, the uh, health care we have, you know, we may have access to amazing technology, but we have to make sure everybody has access. And there's some really exciting elements that we've seen through the pandemic where liquid biopsies such as gallery and others can really help address some of the, you know, flagrant disparities we have uh, in our system. If we get it paid for. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an exciting thought. It really is. And uh, it's a pleasure to have you on here today. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Laura. Pleasure to have a discussion. Thank you all for listening. Go to the website, subscribe, follow me on Twitter, all that stuff. Bye, everybody.